And we talked about how there's a discussion that is a never-ending discussion. And if you like basketball, if you like sports, it's about LeBron James, Michael Jordan, and uh, who's the other guy? Kobe Bryant. And uh, they're always discussing who was the greatest of all time. And the reason why they have that discussion is because of what those three individuals have achieved. As basketball players, they achieved great things. And because they achieved great things, there's a discussion surrounding the three of them as to who is the greatest of all time. And so we looked at it this way. If achievement is what makes you great, then let's look at the achievements of God. Because every single one of you should believe that God is great. Right. And so we established that baseline for us last night. We went to Genesis one and we read the whole chapter. It was wild. And we read about everything that God did and how he created the heavens and the earth and how he placed the stars and how he did this and made the seas and the oceans and the animals. And he did these amazing things. And after every single time he created something, he looked down, and he said it was good. And so if we are judging whether somebody is great or not by achievements, we can see that God is in a category all by himself. Nobody's done what he's done. Nobody's doing what he's still doing, right? No one else placed the stars in sky and no one else hung the moon and the sun. No one else reached down and out of the dust created man. No one else said light be and there's still light. So when we look at God's achievements, we can step back and say, wow, he is the greatest of all time. Or if you want slang, you can say he's the goat, right? And so then we looked at this. We looked at, well, if God is great and then God created us, guess what's on the inside of us? Greatness, because from greatness comes greatness, right? Or we said it this way, at least from greatness, just a little review to get everyone on the same page, at least from greatness comes the opportunity for greatness. And I talked a little bit about LeBron's son, Bronny James, right? And I talked about how universities would probably, if you put my name on an application for a scholarship and a basketball scholarship, and you put Bronny's James on an application for a, a basketball scholarship, and you send it to UCL, UCLA, you send it to Duke University, North Carolina, he wants to be a Tar Heel, you send it to all these universities, just out of name alone, and who their father is, my dad being Bruce Conover, Bronny James' dad being LeBron James, just out of the father's achievements, who's going to have an opportunity to do great things? Well, it's real simple. Bronny's going to get chosen over me every single time. Why? Because my, bas- my family has, well, I got some distant relatives that play basketball, but outside of that, I have no achievements when it comes to that, right? So because of who Bronny James' dad is, LeBron James, there's going to be some opportunities afforded to him that wouldn't be afforded to me. Now, what's cool about it is even though none of our parents is LeBron James, all of our parent is Father God. Amen. And what's cool about this is you may not have a natural family member that is giving you opportunities for greatness, but when you belong to God, he will make sure you have opportunities for greatness. Just if you will serve God, he will make sure that you have an opportunity to do great things. Now, lots of times when we talk about greatness and we talk about God, lots of people think immediately, well, I've got to be a minister to do great things for God. I've got to do what you're doing and stand by in public. No, 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 no. God's called you to do all sorts of things. Maybe there's some lawyers in here. Maybe there's some doctors in here. Maybe there's some janitors in here. Maybe there's some car salesmen in here. Maybe there's the next, I don't know, next athlete sitting in this room. I don't know what your call is, but if you will follow God and trust in the greatness that he's put in you, you will do great things. Amen? Lots of times why people don't do anything great in this life is because they're too busy following what they think they want to do instead of following the plan that God predestined for them a long time ago. We looked at Ephesians 2. He's predestined you for great things. 
What does that mean? And we looked over there in Proverbs where he talked about how he knew you when you were an unformed substance. What is that word in the Greek? That word unformed substance in the Greek, it means embryo or fetus. So when you were a fetus, God knew you. And then I love the latter part of that scripture. It says, why you were a fetus, he was writing the days of your life. So God's written this path for us. Right. And he said, if you follow this path, you're going to do great things. And then he's given us all the tools and the resources right now on the inside of you is everything you need. He's given us Jesus in the name of Jesus. Right. He's given us the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us and teach us. He's given us the word. So greatness is out there. The question is, are we going to walk this path that God has for us to achieve it? Everyone say greatness. And so for the next three weeks, I want to look at some things that we can do to walk in greatness. And when we look at greatness, you know, God, you know, he's up in heaven. He created all these things. But there was someone who walked this earth and did great things. And we can learn from his example. And his name is Jesus Christ. We can look at the things that Jesus did. And we can take some notes and we can say, okay, I see these little secrets to success. And if I'll do those same things, then I can unlock this greatness that's in me. If I'll do these same things, then I can walk out this great plan that God has for my life. So I want to start here. Everyone go to Matthew chapter four. If you have your Bibles, if you're looking it up on your phone, that's fine. But don't be texting. Don't be Snapchatting. Don't be doing anything. But you can use it to take notes and you can look at the, use it to look up scriptures over here in Matthew four. <clears throat> this is uh, Jesus coming out of the wilderness. He just got tempted by the devil. And it's him choosing the first disciples. So we're going to read verse 18 through 21. I'm going to try to go a little quicker tonight because we got to get through some stuff. It says, one day Jesus was walking along the shore beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, a fisher with a fisherman with net. I like this because Jesus saw Peter there and he also had a nickname, Simon Peter. So then he just called him Peter. His name's Simon, but he called him Peter. So if I ever give you a nickname, Jesus started that. <clears throat> so you can't say no, Right. Uh, we got someone here tonight. I'm going to ask you all. Well, I'll just, I'll leave it be. All right. So anyways, that's just my size. So verse 16, he said, and Jesus called out to them, come be my disciples and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and went with them. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in their boat with their father, Zebedee, uh, mending their nets. And he called unto them too. And they immediately followed him, leaving the boat to go, uh, leaving their father and their boat behind to fall after Jesus. And so Jesus, who did great things, one of his secrets of success was he surrounded himself with people that were going to encourage him to be great. I was thinking about it today and I was like, this is kind of coming back and being popular. Jesus, you know, uh, we have, uh, anybody know who Tribal is? Anyone listen to their music? Yeah, okay, one, yeah, one person. Jesus, he built a tribe. And if you look up the definition of tribe, it, it, it talks about a, a group of people in society that have like a leader, which is Jesus, right? We're a tribe. And if you're going to be successful, you got to be, build a tribe that's going to support you. And then it talks about how like they have a creed that they live by, which our creed is the word of God, right? It talked about how they have a language. We have a language. It's the word of God. And we talk different. We look different. We sound different than the world. But my point is, is Jesus started building whatever you want to call it, this tribe, this squad, this group of peers that he knew was going to help him do great things. And then you read about the life of Jesus. Y'all remember when he turned water into wine 
and Jesus blessed it. But who did all the work? It was the disciples that did all the work. You remember when Jesus turned the loaves into fishes? Who did all the work? Jesus, the Bible says, he just looked up to heaven and blessed it, but it was the disciples that did everything. So we see Jesus walking out these great miracles, and lots of times we focus on Jesus as we should, but look at what he did. He surrounded himself with people that would encourage him to be great. And I want to start here. We've got to surround ourselves with people who are going to encourage us to be great. Everyone say greatness. Greatness. Now look at this. Go over to Ecclesiastic. It's page 524. If you have a Bible like mine, I memorized where it was because Ecclesiastic is hard to find. So page 524. Everyone say greatness. greatness. And I said it last week, and I'm just going to say it again. Whether you can see it or not, there's greatness in this room. And I want to interject this. If you don't see it, there's two individuals that do see it. God being one of those individuals and the devil being the other individual. God wants to do everything he can to help you manifest and walk in this greatness. But the devil is going to do everything he can to stop you from walking in greatness. And I always go back to this, at least I have been for the last several weeks. Before Jesus ever started walking in this greatness, the devil was right there to stop him, right? We see the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4. And after the temptation of Jesus, you see Jesus step out into ministry and start doing things. So before he started, the devil tried to stop him. And so you have to understand this too. There's someone out there that wants to stop you. Someone out there that wants to distract you. Someone out there that wants to keep you from this greatness. And so you have to know, how am I going to overcome these things? Yes, you have the word of God. Yes, you have God himself. Yes, you have Jesus. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit. But also in the natural, you should have a people group, a tribe, a squad that's going to encourage you to pursue God. Right? So look at this over in Ecclesiastics. It says, I've obsessed over yet another example of meaningless in our world. This is the case of a man who is all alone, without child or brother, yet who works so hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But he himself finds himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It's all so meaningless and depressing. Two people can accomplish. When we're all alone, everything just seems meaningless. But when we've got a support group, a family, a crew, whatever you want to call it, It reminds us that, you know what, I've got a purpose. And when we have those moments when we're not really feeling the unction to follow our purpose, we have somebody next to us that says, come on, man, you can do this. When you're at school and you're having a bad day, you've got someone in your peer group that says, come on, you can do this. And we're going to look at influence here in just a minute. We're going to look at peer pressure. I want to say peer pressure. Peer pressure. Peer pressure is not just something for high school and middle school. That's something you deal with your whole life. So you got to know how to deal with it the right way. And he says, two people can accomplish more and twice as much as one. They can get a better return for their labor. If, now, this is the part I really want to focus on. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But people who are all alone, when they fall, they're in real trouble. And so we have to make sure when we have these challenges and maybe we slip up, do we have somebody right next to us that's willing to pick us up? And not only that, Are you one of those individuals that's willing to pick somebody else up? Don't be one of those people that when someone falls down, you kick them while they're down there. The Bible describes a real spiritual person is one who restores somebody who has fallen. What does that mean? If you want to be spiritual, then you'll help people. Right? 
And so we have to have this support group so we can do these great things. You guys are familiar with these next two scriptures. Uh, Proverbs 27, 17, it talks about how iron sharpens iron and one person sharpens another. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, it talks about don't be misled. Bad companionship corrupts good morals. So we see these two opposite ends of the spectrum, how right people make us better and make us sharper and how wrong people make us dull and actually corrupt our morals, corrupt our character. If we're going to achieve greatness, we've got to have people around us that make us better. Amen. That's why it's so important to come to church on Wednesday nights. What are we doing when we worship? We're making each other better. Right? But that doesn't stop here. We should be doing that at school as well. You remember Jesus. We don't have time to go read it. But he's ministering to a woman in Mark, or Matthew chapter 5. No, it's Mark 5, sorry. The woman with the issue of blood and why he's ministering to a woman with the issue of blood. Who's right there? Jairus, whose daughter is dead. Right? And Jesus is, you know, dealing with the woman of issue of blood because she touched him. And the Bible says virtue went out of him and she was made whole. So he turns around. He's like, who touched me? And while he's dealing with the woman of issue of blood, a servant comes from Jairus' house and says, don't bother to teach her anymore. Your daughter's dead. And Jesus hears this and he turns to Jairus and he says, don't be afraid. Only believe. Everyone say only believe. Right now, if you go and you read Mark 5, what's really important is there's a whole crowd around him. Right. A massive crowd. And there's so many people that when the woman with the issue of blood touched him and Jesus said, who touched me? What did the disciples say? Jesus, everyone is touching you. There's so many people here. You can't get away from them. We know that scholars and theologians, they teach us that there were so many people that if someone passed out from the heat, they wouldn't have fell to the ground. It was that crowded around Jesus, right? But what does Jesus do? As soon as Jairus, he has to go to Jairus' house, the Bible says he told the crowd, don't come with me. And then it says he took three with him. Peter, James, and John. So what was Jesus doing? I can't take all these people because all these people do not support my greatness. Let me take the people who do support me. We see this twice in this passage. Then he gets to Jairus' house. And there's a bunch of professional weepers in there and they're crying. And Jesus says, this girl's not dead. She's just sleeping. And what did all those criers do? They started laughing. And so Jesus was able to, he was able to locate them. They're not genuine at all. There's just a bunch of fakers in here. And if you study this in history back then, people actually got paid to weep with the family. So they didn't care about the family. They just wanted the Benjamins. They're just in there trying to get money. And when Jesus said, she's not dead, she's just sleeping, they started laughing because they didn't care at all. They're just there to get paid. And Jesus said, I perceive that you're not for me, you're against me. And what did he say? He said, clear them out. So twice in the same chapter, for Jesus to walk in greatness, he had to separate himself from people that would hold him back. Twice in one chapter. Not even a full chapter, just a couple of verses. So close. So what does that tell us? If we want to walk in greatness, we can't have people that are fake. Right? We can't have people that are there for the wrong reasons. We can't have people that are there for themselves. We got to have people that genuinely care for us. And I can only imagine what his disciples were thinking. They knew she was dead and Jesus said that, but they were like, you know what? I trust you. 
I believe in what, get people that believe in you and believe in what God's called you to do. When you go to one of your friends, you're like, man, God's telling me to be a lawyer. They shouldn't laugh at that. They should be like, go get it. That's the people you want in your life. This is so pivotal and key to achieving greatness. We see this all throughout Jesus' life, even his close disciples, which is so cool. We don't have time to look at it. But you remember, if you go and you study in Matthew 16, verses 20 through 23, Jesus was like, who do people say that I am? Pastor just talked about this Sunday, right? And they're like, well, they say maybe you're John the Baptist, maybe you're Elijah, maybe you're a prophet reborn. And then Jesus is like, all right, that's cool. Now, who do you say that I am? And then Peter steps up and he's like, you are the Messiah. Dude, that's so cool to me. Jesus is here proclaiming, I'm the sent one. I'm the Messiah. And his disciples were like, yo, we support that. You're the Messiah. Jesus had people that supported him and what he was called to do. Now, what's so interesting about this, you keep reading just a little bit later and Jesus is telling him, I've got to go back to Jerusalem. That's where I'm called to suffer. I've got to carry my cross. I've got to do this for the church fam. I got to do this so everybody can get born again. And then Peter, in the same couple of verses, he stands up and he pulls Jesus aside into a private place and he says, no, you can't do this. I'll never let you die for everybody's sin. And what does Jesus say? He looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes him. Right? And so what's so interesting about this is Peter went from supporting him and being like, we support you as the Messiah, to all of a sudden saying, no, you cannot do this. So that tells me, yes, the right support group is absolutely important. But at the same time, if those closest to you start pulling you away, you need to step up and be like, no, I've got to follow this. On Wednesday night, if some friends are like, just don't go to church, come hang out with us instead. Maybe they're your closest friends and they're always pushing you to do good things. In that moment, you've got to recognize, no, following this is more important. Amen? Amen. Find people that believe in you and believe in your call, whatever that might be. So when you're wavering, they can push you. But then at the same time, if they start to waver, push yourself. Everyone say greatness. greatness. Now, these are two different things. I want to read this definition real quick about peer pressure. It means influence from members of one's peer group. Now, notice that whenever we hear peer pressure, it always has a negative connotation around it, doesn't it? Peer pressure. But the definition itself doesn't tell us if it's bad or it's good. It just says it's influence. So what makes peer pressure bad or good? Well, we see it right there with Jesus and Peter. In one moment, the peer pressure is good because it's pursuing him to follow the plan. It's pursuing, it's telling him, be who you are in God. Follow the plan he has for your life. What is that? That's positive peer pressure. Because Peter's using his influence to push Jesus to do great things. He's using his influence to push Jesus to follow God's plan for his life and do all these wonderful achievements that we now read about in the word of God. And then just a few verses later, we see negative peer pressure. Why? Because now, instead of pushing him towards the plan, he's standing in between Jesus and the plan. So what does that mean for us? Peer pressure is not bad. We just need to surround ourselves with the right type of peer pressure. Get people in your life that push you towards the plan of God, that push you 
and maybe you don't know what the plan of God is for your life right now, then get people that push you towards him. Because as you get closer to him, he'll reveal the plan. Everybody say greatness. greatness. And so it's entirely up to us, guys. One thing I've seen the devil use more than anything else is negative influence in people's lives. I've seen more plans corrupted and compromised because people weren't careful who they chose to be in their inner circle. Jesus was really specific who he chose. And you know what's so cool about that? <clears throat> the individuals he chose weren't grown men in their 50s and their 60s. They were teenagers. Most of them are determined between the ages of 15 and 20. That's who Jesus chose. So what does that tell me? Even at the age that you are, you can find people who will support you in God. And you can be one of those people that support others in their walk with God. Get a group around you that pushes you towards greatness. What does that look like? They push you towards him. 